0: Hey, everybody, good to see you. Okay, that's all right. It's going to be one of those days. (laughs) All right. We got some work to do. Okay, so if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and grab that now and begin uh, turning to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2. I'll begin reading in verse 9 in just a few minutes. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. Okay, church, Von Forrest, in the room here with me, joining us online Wherever you are, if you're listening later on in the week, uh, whatever the case may be, I am so glad that we have this opportunity to again open God's word to hear what he has to say to us. Because again, as we said last week, the only perfect words that you're going to hear today are God's word. And so uh, we pray that he would speak to us this morning. So we're in a series again, walking slowly, taking a look at the book of Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah, and you can see the theme is up on the screens behind me. But the theme is not just for the uh, the series itself, but this is what I see as the narrative arc. This is what Nehemiah's story really boils down to: rebuild, redeem, rescue. That's what we talked about the first week of the series, and what I'm saying is the theme over and over again. He was responding to God's call on his life. Nehemiah was. He was responding to a, an actual word from the Lord. So uh, let's, uh, let's just talk for a second, okay? Let's just talk. So um, I appreciated the opportunity last week to, to pray for Israel. I hope that you are doing that consistently as well. But um, just as you're turning to Nehemiah chapter two, has anybody ever told you a story? Has anybody ever like tried to relate an experience to you something that their story that they're sharing with you is so compelling. It's almost like unbelievable. Like it's fascinating. You're wondering though, as they're telling you this story, like, is that actually true? Like, did that really take place or is this a little bit of a tall tale? Is this something like, you know, in my line of work, is this more like preacher speak or did this actually happen? And so, uh, you know, if you're, I'm not asking though, if you're, you know, normally bent towards optimism or if you're skeptical, maybe if you only believe what you can see, but there's something about actually being in the room that changes the experience. There's something about actually being in the same place where uh, Where things are happening, it changes your understanding. I was talking to a friend of mine he's retired uh, retired captain from the Navy. And he was uh, sharing some pictures and some video with me about how he has spent a majority of his career actually in the Middle East. And even in some of the places that we're seeing pop up on the news, like my friend uh, Mick is actually showing me on his phone that he's actually been to these places. And so as he's relating, like how he's experiencing what's going on halfway around the world, he has a totally different experience to share with me. And I'm just somebody who can You know, I I can pull something up on the internet or I can ask a friend, but I've never actually been there. Being in the place, actually being on the ground. And I would say this, just charitably speaking, there is a huge, you're joining online today. I'm so glad that you are. This is, you're you're checking things out. You're wondering what kind of church this is, what kind of preacher this is. I have those questions too. But uh, you know, there's a difference between just watching something online, you know this, that it's a completely different experience just tuning into a podcast or pulling a sermon up on YouTube and then actually being in the room with the saints, the covenant family of God, that's a different story altogether. Like you can actually feel, I believe that, that like God is with us here, manifest. His presence is here in the room with us. This is special. This is sacred. So again, we're in this book, Nehemiah, there's the theme, but today is week four of the series. We find ourselves, Nehemiah, he has heard the news, he has prayed before God, he has gone before the king, and now Nehemiah is actually going to see the damage, witness the destruction, actually walk among the ruins firsthand and it changes things for him. So can I ask you please to stand to your feet now in honor of the reading of the word of God. Please stand with me. I'll begin reading in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, It displeased them greatly that somebody had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. "'I went out by night by the valley gate "'to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, "'and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem "'that were broken down, "'and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. "'Then I went on to the fountain gate "'and to the king's pool, "'but there was no room for the animal "'that was under me to pass.' Then I went up in the night by the valley and and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper." And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is God's word. You may be seated. These verses, God put these words in the Bible and the reason he put them in there were to give us perspective. These verses are found in the Old Testament and yet we see in them prophetic typology. My goal this morning is to prove to you that Nehemiah is not just a historical figure who had a building project to complete thousands of years ago, but that Nehemiah was a Christ-type figure prophetically saying, this is what will take place not just among the ruins of Jerusalem, but among the people, the covenant family of God. These verses give you and me courage and wisdom and perspective, even and especially in the face of of opposition, And we should expect that. Number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. We should expect opposition. Look at verse 10 again. Let me read it. Verse 10, we should expect opposition. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that somebody had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Sanballat is introduced to us as the governor of Samaria. So he is, not, uh, he is not a part of God's family, okay? Cool, great, you get that. Why does that matter? Good question. Nehemiah and Sanballat are almost natural political enemies, and yet Sanballat has it out for Nehemiah from the moment he shows up. So why does it matter to this governor of Samaria so much? Why is he so ticked off? Why is he so mad that Nehemiah has shown up? I have questions. Do you think it's jealousy? Do you think that now, you know he's been around this area, he's seen the the place in ruins. Do you think that he looks at this new guy who comes on the scene, this can happen, this is like day to day, this happens in your office, this happens in the classroom, this happens all the time. A new person shows up, all of a sudden they're popular, their ideas are, are favored over the old school ideas. Is he thinking in jealousy? Well, I wish I could do something like that. Like I wish I had the opportunity to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Sounds like a cool project. Is it jealousy? Is it envy? Man, envy is such an insidious sin. Envy, he's wondering, maybe it's like, man, why do they get to do that? Why do they get to go and complete this project? Why are they going and working on God's house and God's place? Why do they get to do that and I have to keep doing the same old, boring, everyday routine? Why do they get to and I don't get to? So is it a jealousy? Is it envy? Is it control? Is it that nobody asked him? Nobody asked his permission. Like Nehemiah didn't write him a letter asking him if it would be okay for this to go on where he was exercising his rule. Was it jealousy, envy, or control? The underlying motivation of this governor not being happy. The underlying motivation for the opposition to Nehemiah and his people, the underlying motivation was anger. He was angry. Like not jealous, not envious, not wanting control. He was flat out just angry. Mad. That's the cause of Sanballat's bad mood. But why should the restoration, this matters so much, why should the restoration of the neglected walls of Jerusalem produce such a brutal, childlike outburst from the governor of Samaria? Why did this happen? Great question. Because Sanballat saw Jerusalem as an economic threat to Samaria. Samaria had become, at this point in history, they had become one of the main highways linking the river valley to the north with Egypt in the south and Philistia in the west. So if Jerusalem's walls get rebuilt, if the city comes back to life, when Jerusalem is again a well-protected city, the actual location itself would negatively affect trade and Samaria would lose its economic supremacy. So, that proves to you all that I did my homework, I did my research, I read the commentaries, I did the whole, all the work in Hebrew, right? So cool history lesson, good, you wanna pray and go home? No, there's so much more to that. What am I saying? What is it about this history lesson that matters so much? Nehemiah was not caught off guard by the opposition from these men. Like he doesn't spend time exploring his emotions, seeing how it made him feel that these guys weren't happy to see that this new building project was gonna take place. He wasn't caught off guard. Do you know why? Because Don Carson says that these people who were opposing the people of God, these people opposing Nehemiah, they were not part of the covenant family of God. And that matters. Why? This is so helpful. Like this is gonna set some of you all so free. Nehemiah was not asking people who did not know God to help in his God-given endeavor. Do you see it? He wasn't expecting their support. He was not surprised by their opposition. And do you know why? Because they weren't a part of the family of God and they weren't acting like they were part of the family of God. Translation, they acted like lost people. And as the people of God, as Jesus followers, there's so much sanity to be gained in that lesson. Lost people, church, lost people will act like lost people. They don't, they don't value what we value. They don't su- support what you support or protect what you want to protect. Do we want them to? Absolutely. Yes. Amen. We want people to see that the things that we value are the right things to value. We want people to see that it's not just a moral claim to say that life matters from womb to tomb, that life matters, that life is precious, that it's a sacred right that you can't just vote on and legislate. Do we want people to see that things like abortion is wrong? Yes, amen. We should pray to that end, please. We want people to vote like we vote, protect what we protect, support what we support. Yes, but we don't just want them to agree with us. We're not just asking them to check the same boxes that we checked. We want them to support and protect and value what we support and protect and value because they are in Christ with us. Do you see that? And that process is maddeningly slow because it turns out that it takes more than just an overnight, for somebody to be fully conformed into the image of Christ Jesus. It should free us up. It should save us some trouble. We don't have to be surprised or caught off guard when lost people act like lost people. That is not, by the way, I don't, that is not judgmental. That is not a condemning statement. Do you know why? Why can I say that? Because at one point in my life, I acted like a lost person. Do you know why? Because I was lost. There was a point in my life that I did not know Jesus. I did not protect what Jesus said, protect, support what Jesus said, support, and value what Jesus said, value. I didn't do those things. Do you know why? Because I was lost. And you know what led me to Jesus? Not being scolded, not arguing. You may find this impossible to believe but I didn't even read a Facebook post and decide to change my mind. Crazy. I suspect for most of us in the room that we share the same story. I was told about Jesus and I was led to Christ by somebody who was burdened for me. They were burdened for me. And that's the posture that we as the church, as Jesus followers, we have to take. We aren't bothered by the world, the culture, society. We aren't bothered by the world. We are burdened for our world. Not bothered, burdened. And it should should move us. It should affect us. It should change how we spend our lives and how we spend our money and how we spend our energy and how we spend our day-to-day interactions and conversation. It should change everything about us not just being mad, not just declaring them the enemy, but being genuinely burdened, moved, because there is a world, there is a world outside of these walls. This is crazy. There are people who right now they're, they're within a mile of this church. They're your neighbors. They, they go to school with your kids. They'll be in the drop-off line tomorrow morning. There are real, actual men, women, boys and girls who if they died, they would go to hell. Like that's not, I know that's, that's not how we're supposed to talk anymore about hell and sin and that kind of thing, but hell is real and hot and forever. And we should be moved and burdened by that. So I wanna ask you a question. So um, do you know, Anybody in your life who likes to fish for compliments? Do you know people like that? You know people who like, they'll, they'll walk up to you and they'll go, hey, happy birthday. And you'll go, it's not my birthday. And they'll go, well, I just thought we had the same birthday. Like that's, the, that's their way of getting you to say happy birthday to them. Like they're like, you know, they, they walk up and they're like, "Do you notice my shoes? You know, no, I'm, I'm sorry. That was an awkward image for everybody in the room to have to watch me do that. Um, you know these people though they they fish for compliments. But there is this phenomenon. I, I know this is insane. There is this this it's a modern phenomenon now that if you don't actually post a picture of your workout that people don't believe you actually worked out. Like if you're if you go to CrossFit and you don't talk about CrossFit, I don't think you do it. I really don't. Like I doubt it. I really do. I just doubt it. Like there's this idea this is a phrase worked itself in the, like modern culture is this pics or it didn't happen. Like picture didn't help. You gotta show me a picture, man. I need proof. I need to see. I need to actually feel it. I'm not just gonna, you know, like we have, we were just bent that way. I actually, this is, don't tell her this, but um, I work alongside somebody who, she feels so much pressure in everything that she leads. So much pressure. Every event, even public impression and reputation, like in her mind, it has to be the best of the best. Now, She is a Christian. She has a rightly ordered mind. She has solid theology. She does not face the threat of imminent job loss. So why does she think like this? Is it because she wants her team to do well? She wants her team to succeed? Does she want the people that she leads to be well thought of? Maybe, but probably not. Probably the reason that she feels so much weight, maybe you know somebody like this too. Maybe, Probably the reason she feels so much weight for every single thing that she does to be seen and heard and approved. The reason she feels that weight is because there's an illusion, and it's an illusion, of control. And the illusion of control is that if we just prepare or plan, even pray, then we can control the outcome. That's why we do the things that we do. That's why we have a tendency to lead in specific ways. We want to gather popular opinion. We want to take a straw poll. We want to make sure we have the majority on our side. Church family, I I don't know that that's necessarily the way of biblical wisdom. What do I mean? I think there's something more that we can gain from this text besides um, Nehemiah showed up on the ground and he actually walked around and saw the damage. I think there's something to be said about how he conducted himself. I think it's important to note that Nehemiah demonstrated an incredible and in wise, a wise way to look at life. For Nehemiah, this principle is summed up as obey first, announce later. If you're taking notes, obey first, announce later. This is the prophetic wisdom in Nehemiah chapter two. This is last week, if you were with us, I said, there's a fascinating little verse. Well, this is the fascinating little verse that is so prophetically wise. This verse tells us to go to God and then go public. This verse actually is prophetic because we see this principle demonstrated in the New Testament. We see this principle in the life of Jesus. Very rarely would Jesus ever publicly Declare or teach or lead or even heal without having first spent time alone with the Father. Go to God, then go public. Obey first, announce later. Look at verse 12. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. I love that. That verse reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses two and three, when he says, "'Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed "'or hidden that will not be known. "'Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark "'shall be heard in the light, "'and what you have whispered in private rooms "'shall be proclaimed on the housetops.'" Now, a lot of times, and it's okay, you'll hear that, hear that verse preached as a way to you know, say, don't keep secrets, don't have secret sin, don't have a private life, don't have a double life. You don't want the worst thing about you to be discovered. Yes, 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 I think that's okay. But I love that verse for another reason because I read it and this is what I hear. You don't get to choose if you'll be found out, but you can choose what will be found out. You don't get to choose if you'll be found out, but you can choose what will be found out. And what happens when Nehemiah finally is discovered, when they finally figure out what he's doing there? What do we do though, when we trend away from prayer and trend away from spending time alone with God, when we trend away from obeying first and then announcing it? Why do we do that though? The reason we do that is because we think we need to build consensus. This is not just for extroverts. This is not just for people who are like me and talkative. This is not a personality profile. This is true of every single one of us in the room. Our need to build consensus, to make sure that people agree with us, that need comes from a place. To me, this is a test. We have a fear, a fear of being wrong. And we hope to have somebody to blame if we're wrong. But let me remind you of Paul's words to his friend Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7 that says, for God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Did you notice what this text said about Nehemiah? He had some people with him. The men were there, but he was not yet casting vision. He was confident, but this is not false bravado. Why else do we need to pray privately before we make it public? Why why do we fight against that? Why is that not your natural tendency? Why do you and I like to first gather popular opinion? and say, do you think this is a good idea? Do you think this will be all right? Do you think this will go well? Why do we do that? Because we need public affirmation before we're ever going to do public demonstration. Can I just raise my hand here? Can I just say that when I wrote this phrase in my notes earlier this week, I thought, oh man, that is you. That is you, brother. Like, that is you. You better confess that sin to that church. This is not me pointing a finger at anybody but raising my hand. For a long time, way too long, for a long time in my life, the way I found confidence was if enough, or this is so horrible, not just enough, but if the right people liked what I was doing. Wicked. It's just foolishness. Call it what you want. People-pleasing, need for affirmation, it's sin. It's not just that I wanted to make sure I wasn't gonna to make too many people mad. It's that I judged what I thought was right by what I thought would be popular. Church, that is, that is foolishness. The truth of the gospel will not always win popular opinion. There's a reason we read in 1 Corinthians 27 that God chose the foolish things of the world to put to shame those who are wise. If we wait for public affirmation to go public with our God-given call, we will do nothing but wait. We'll just keep waiting. Why don't we go to God before we go public? Because we ask of people what only God can provide we ask people, our friends, our family, our businesses, so like everybody, we ask people, give me security. Give me security that this is gonna go right. That this, if this goes badly, that I'll still be okay. Give me that security. We ask of people to give us assurance to make sure that I'm not the only one who thinks this is a good idea, right? Tell me I'm not the only crazy person. We ask people to give us security and assurance and courage we want people to tell us and assure us that what I'm about to do has been focus group researched. Isn't it interesting, though, that all of those, all of those things that we're looking for, people can't give us. That all of those places in our life, all of those things we think we need, people can't give us those, but only God can. I think it's interesting that... Uh, If you follow Jesus long enough, if you're a Christian long enough, um, you will look back at some points and go, I can't believe I used to like that author. I can't believe I used to listen to that guy preach. I can't believe I used to like really get into uh, that church's worship music. It's interesting that the voices you trust at some points of your life, and then you'll look back and you'll go, what was I thinking? Like that 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 was weird. That was weird that I thought that was good or that I liked that. I actually, now, like, I can think back, following Jesus now for a a number of decades. Like, I look back, and I'm like, man, I don't think that those people were really even, like, solid, had solid theology. Um, What I found more interesting, though, is this, is that uh, the Lord almost always redeems those voices for me. Like, he uses them in helpful ways. So, let me just tell you. There was a book that made the rounds, and if this is your favorite book, I, I'm not saying it's a bad book, all right? So it, good for you. Like, I love it. I love that you love it, all right? But there was a book that made the rounds in Christian pop culture a few years ago, and it was called Draw the Circle. Author was, uh, is Mark Batterson. He's a pastor of a bunch of churches in Washington, D.C. Draw the Circle. Now, let me just say, for me, where the way I understand the Bible, Jesus, following him, um, I can't Commend all of the content or the theology of that book. I'm not saying you should buy that book. I'm not saying you should burn that book, right? I just, I need to tell you about it, and I'll tell you why. So, one of the parts of this book, draw the circle, it invites the reader. So, I was reading it uh, with Lane, my wife. uh, It invites the reader to ask God to give you specific words, like to ask God to say, like, give me a phrase. Give me like a word for this season to, to, you know, define this season. Give me a word or a phrase that kind of marks this time. And then you just pray specifically those words or those phrases over and over again in those ways. I don't know, stay with me. So I'm getting there. So I was reading this book, uh, Draw the Circle, and Lane and I were reading it together. And he talked about how there was a time when he was really like burdened for the city of Washington, D.C. And so he decided to like walk around the city and ask God like, actually, hey, we need a place. We need land. We need a room to meet as a church. And so uh, we were at a time in our life where it was, you know, we're kind of making some decisions and trying to ask God like what we're doing and what was next. And so Lane, uh, she gives me a whole day to go and just be alone with the Lord, just to go and spend a day with Jesus. She's awesome. So anyway, I go and I spend a whole day in prayer and worship and silence I promise. Uh, So a whole day, just prayer and worship. And again, I'm not saying this is orthodox. I'm not saying this is how you should do it. I'm not saying this was God speaking to me. Anyway, so so, something I came away with though, was that day that I really felt like was impressed upon me, led by uh, the Holy Spirit, was this phrase. And the phrase was this, tell the whole story. It's in your notes, tell the whole story. And to me, tell the whole story, what that means to me is incredibly personal. And I'll tell you why. The reason the phrase tell the whole story matters is because I come from a good news family. Like the Moors are good news people. We are stridently positive. Like if you're around me long enough, you you will find out that I can be blindingly optimistic, like overwhelming. Like I can overwhelm you. I just believe, man. Like I absolutely, like if you give me long enough, I think I can change your mind. And this is gonna be great. All right? Um, that can be good at times. Again, try being married to that. Uh, try, um, try having a boss like that. So while I am, I am, I am so optimistic. I am so positive. I just believe. I am so optimistic. There is, and I want you to know me, okay? Because that's true, I'm so optimistic. There is in me a shadow side. There, there is a dark side to me. There is a wicked Tendency to want to leave out the bad, hard, confrontational, even if it would be good for you to know. Like that's something I war against. That is sin I'm trying to kill. That's what I love when I read this part of the text from Nehemiah chapter two. This is everything. Nehemiah is about to put together a 40 unit plan to rebuild the wall. He's about to ask a lot of people to leave where they have been and to come to a city that's in ruins, that's completely just burned to the ground. That's what it says over and over. Like this is so particular. The Bible says over and over again that the gates have been burned with fire. And he's angering the the surrounding countries and the surrounding nations because now he's wanting the city of Jerusalem to be the center of economic culture. He wants to bring the people of God back to the city of God. And this place is a wasteland. This is not an ideal scenario. He's walking up to people and he's going to actually have to say, would you come and join me and do this thing? He's gonna ask them to put themselves through demanding physical labor. He doesn't, I love this, Nehemiah doesn't soft sell it. He doesn't sugarcoat it. Nehemiah is brutally honest. He's brutally honest. And that is is a picture, church, that is a picture. Our savior, Jesus, was brutally honest. Think about some of the phrases, the band's coming out. Think about some of the phrases, the words that Jesus used to describe following him, being a Christian, being a Jesus follower. He said, you will be persecuted for my namesake. And when you are, call yourself Blessed. I used to say one of my least phrases, my least favorite phrases in the Bible is that in this world, you will have trouble. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Think about the first disciples who followed Jesus around. Peter, who reminds me of me a lot, But Peter followed Jesus around so much that by the time Jesus had died and rose again and sent him out to build his church, that Peter's building his church, he's healing people, he's proclaiming the gospel, he gets in trouble. And they say, we're gonna kill you if you don't stop. And he goes, bring it on, man. On the way to Peter's death, they ask, so how are you gonna kill me? And they go, we're gonna kill you the same way we killed your Lord Jesus. And he goes, don't you dare. Don't you dare, you don't you crucify me the same way that you crucified him. You you turn me upside down. I don't even deserve to be killed the way that you killed my savior, Jesus. People were martyred. They were, read Hebrews 11 sometime. Verse 17 of Nehemiah chapter two, he said it. I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Look around, gentlemen. I'm not gonna lie. It's bad you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. I love that. This is him squaring up and saying, I know it's bad. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. This is what it looks like to really rely on God. Do you see that? The proof of why God was needed was obvious. He just looked around. They could look around, they could step on it. They could feel it, they could smell it, they could notice it. There was a clear need. Now, lean in, okay? Sometimes, sometimes, when you are looking for confirmation that what you need to do is from God, that the next step is in line with God's will, whatever that means. Sometimes what you're looking for is ideal conditions. Does it make sense? Do enough people agree? Can I see this actually succeeding? This is not the case for Nehemiah and the people of God. In fact, it's the opposite. All the markers, all the data points. Man, if you were trying to deem if a place was appropriate for a rebuild, Jerusalem's not ideal. The facts presented to Nehemiah are giving him all the reasons to go, we should not be doing this. I think what I'm trying to say is this is how God works. This is how God works every single time. God takes the places, but let me add, most often God takes the people whose life is lying in ruins and he says, that's where I'm gonna do my work. That's, that's who I'm gonna use. That's who I'm going to redeem. That's where we're going to see a miracle take place. That's where I'm going to display my glory. Nehemiah is a prophetic picture of Jesus because it's, it's Nehemiah going to a city that lay in ruins to redeem it, to rebuild it, and to rescue it. But what he was doing was a shadow picture of what our Savior Jesus would come to do thousands of years later and what he's still doing today, coming to men and women, boys and girls, people who are far from God, people who their lives lay in ruins, who all the data points say, this cannot be turned around. This can't be fixed. They can't get it together. They might as well just give in and say enough is enough already. Jesus would come to you today and say, is your life in ruins? Are you messed up? Can you not seem to manage your way through these circumstances? Or are you so confused and busy and overwhelmed? You don't know what to do anymore. Jesus looks at you and says, perfect. You're exactly the type of man or woman that I would love to use to display my glory. The invitation today is twofold, it's for all of us. The invitation is first, are you trying to decide? Like, are you wrestling? You just don't know what to do. What's next? How many pros and cons lists have you made? I just wanna ask you, if you're into that, just make sure on all your lists that on the pro column, you also include, if God is for me, who can be against me? And was your life a total disaster? I mean, just ruins. Like the last thing you wanted to hear the doctor say, he said it. Last thing you ever wanted to hear from your kid, she said it. Worst thing you ever wanted, like you look at that forecast, you look at the amount in the account, all the things, right? Life is just total unmanageable. Like you're not even, like 12 steps sounds too advanced for you. (laughs) Just my life's messed up, man. I've got great, great news for you. Great news. You are exactly, the type of person that God specializes in using. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that you don't give up that you don't see as we see. You don't pick how we would pick. And stories have different endings because of you. I pray you would help us to change our minds, give us perspective to see that while all of the signs in our lives might be pointing in the wrong way. Jesus, you can still lead us to life to the full and life everlasting. Help us to trust you, to follow you, and to worship you. It's in your name, amen.